Episode 60, Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death. At the end of the last episode, we left colonial Boston chafing under British military rule. Now, Boston was a big port and a very important commercial center in New England, but it wasn't all of New England. There was a lot of other cities and a lot of other people there. And Boston wasn't even a very big city geographically. In fact, Boston at the time was entirely on one small peninsula of land in the middle of Boston Harbor. It was connected to the mainland only by one small isthmus of land to the south. Now, nowadays, if you look at the maps of Boston, a lot of the harbor space around Boston has been backfilled, so the old part of Boston isn't quite as isolated as it was back in the colonial days. But look at a couple of maps and compare what it was and what it is now. Back in 1774, because of this little isthmus of land, it was pretty easy for the British to cut Boston Harbor off and cut the city of Boston off from the rest of Massachusetts. The Royal Navy controlled the harbor of Boston and all of the sea lanes in Massachusetts, outside out in the Atlantic Ocean, all the approaches to Boston. So it was pretty easy for them to cut off supplies coming to and from the city of Boston. After the Tea Party, the Redcoats fully imposed martial law on the city. There was a strict curfew and restrictions on gatherings and crowds. But there was still an underground network of patriots meeting secretly, and making plans, including the Sons of Liberty. And they had spies among the British loyalists. All of the rest of the colonies knew about the British lockdown of Boston, and many of them drafted resolutions of support. In the summer of 1774, the colony of Massachusetts, that is the rest of Massachusetts that wasn't cut off, right, sent out a call for representatives from all the other colonies to meet together in Philadelphia to discuss plans to work together. So in September of 1774, 12 of the 13 colonies came together in what was to be known as the First Continental Congress. That was only 12 out of 13 because Georgia decided not to send a representative, in part because there was a fairly large British army there in Georgia fighting an Indian uprising, and Georgia did not want to anger the British army, nor did they want them to leave, which would leave them less well defended against the Indians. So the other 12 colonies sent representatives, including John Adams, George Washington, John Jay of New York, who would go on to become one of the first Supreme Court judges, and Patrick Henry, who we will hear from again shortly. The First Continental Congress agreed to a boycott of importing British goods, and they drew up a petition to the king asking for the repeal of the Intolerable Acts and asking the king to lift the siege of Boston. This by the way, was going to be completely ignored by the king and parliament. The first Congress also made plans to meet again the next year. In March of 1775, Virginia called its own internal convention, which met in Richmond to discuss the Tea Act and what the state was going to do to defend themselves. As it was becoming clear, even in Virginia, that the British government was actively interfering with the internal governing of all the colonies, including Virginia. In fact, the British governor had dissolved the Virginia House of Burgesses, which is the Virginia equivalent to a House of Representatives, and made no plans to have it reconvene. The governor had refused permission for the convention to meet as well there in Virginia and Richmond, but they met anyway. Now, Virginia had another 
previous convention back in August, and they had declared their solidarity with Boston and banned the sale or import of British goods. And in that earlier one, they had picked their representatives to the first Continental Congress. Now, in the second Virginia Congress in March of 1775, the Virginians were meeting again to decide how to defend themselves. Five of the six Virginians who would go on to sign the Declaration of Independence, including George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, were there in attendance in the Second Virginia Convention. Several speeches were given in favor of resistance to the British and then some in favor of peace and negotiation. And then Patrick Henry stood to take his turn. He gave a speech that proposed arming and increasing the Virginia militia, and then he went on to close out his speech like this. They tell us, sir, that we are weak, unable to cope with so formidable an adversary. But when shall we be stronger? Will it be next week or next year? Will it be when we are totally disarmed and when a British guard is stationed in every house? Shall we gather strength by irresolution and inaction? Shall we acquire the means of effectual resistance by lying supinely on our backs and hugging the delusive phantom of hope until our enemies shall have us bound hand and foot? There is no retreat but in submission and slavery. Our chains are already forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable and let it come. I repeat, sir, let it come. It is in vain, sir, to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war is actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that the gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Wow. I mean, wow. What a speech. Apparently, everyone at the convention was deeply moved by Henry's speech, and the convention resolved to call, train, and arm the militia, which was, in and of itself, kind of a declaration of war. The convention also again pledged its support for Boston, and then it put Patrick Henry, Washington, Jefferson, and several others onto a committee to begin arming and training the militia. Virginia was also moving towards active revolt. Back in Boston, the British had made plans to neutralize the Patriots by stacking the box with eight defensive linemen and having a strong running game themselves. Uh, no, wait, wait, wait. Wrong Patriots, wrong era. Back in Boston, the British had made plans to neutralize the Patriots by offering amnesty to anyone who came back to the British side and pledged to support the king. But they specifically excluded John Hancock and Samuel Adams. The British were planning to arrest those two as soon as they found them, but John and Sam had snuck out of the city and were living with friends in Lexington, which was about a five or six hour march to the northwest of Boston. Through their own network of spies, the British heard about John and Sam's whereabouts and also heard about a substantial cache of guns and gunpowder out in Concord, which was another two hours march farther inland. So the British made plans to march out in force, 
arrest John Hancock and Samuel Adams, and then go on to Concord and confiscate the guns and gunpowder. Just a word of warning. If you're in America, it's always, always a risky idea to go and try to confiscate anyone's guns. It's a bad idea. The Patriots, through their own network of spies, learned of the British plans and started making plans of their own. One of the Patriot spies was a 40-year-old silversmith named Paul Revere. He was still in the British-occupied part of Boston, but it was his job to communicate the British intentions from Boston to the other people on the mainland. Knowing that the British were moving, but not knowing exactly how they planned to go, Paul Revere arranged the famous one if by land, two if by sea signal. If the British were going to try to march by land to Lexington over the narrow isthmus, Revere would place one lantern in the steeple of the Old North Church, which was visible from the mainland. If the British were planning on sailing up the river in boats, then it was going to be two lanterns, one if by land, two if by sea. As it was, the British were indeed planning on marching at dawn. So, one lantern was set up in the steeple of the Old North Church, and then Paul Revere had a few other friends row him across the Charles River, where he met a few of the other patriots on the mainland, and they gave him a horse. Revere passed on the British plans to those patriots, then he and about 40 other men rode through the dark, going north and west and south, going from town to town. In some places, they stopped to talk to particular people to give them the plans. In others, they just rode through the town shouting, The Redcoats are coming! The Redcoats are coming! Or some version of that warning. Revere was at one point captured by a British sentry, but he was able to escape and continue his ride. So, by the time that the British started their march from Boston at just before dawn, the entire mainland to the west, south, and northwest of Boston had been warned and individuals and small groups of colonial militia began to gather together. Most everyone knew the British plan was to go to Lexington and then arrest John Hancock and Samuel Adams and then go to try to take the guns and gunpowder in Concord. So the militia members managed to get themselves somewhere along that route. Many of these militia members were what was known as Minutemen because they had made plans to be able to get ready in just one minute and they knew where to gather and who was more or less in charge. So on the morning of April 18th, 1775, the British force of about 700 soldiers set out from Boston, marched across the peninsula to the south, and began to march northwest towards Lexington. They reached Lexington in the early morning, and about 70 Minutemen had already gathered on the green outside the village to oppose the march. Both sides stopped and pointed their weapons at each other. And then someone, it's not clear who, fired a shot. And just like that, the colonies were at war with the British Empire. It's hard to overstate how important that moment was, and this became known as the shot heard round the world, though that line actually comes from a poem by Ralph Waldo Emerson about the battle at Concord later in the day. We'll come back to the poem in a minute. But after the first shot at Lexington, both sides emptied their weapons and there was a brief skirmish of fighting. Then the colonists rapidly scattered. Eight colonists were killed, another eight or so wounded. One redcoat was wounded. But the British were quite surprised by the resistance and it put them on edge. 
In Lexington, of course, Samuel Adams and John Hancock were nowhere to be found, for they, like everyone else, had been warned that the Redcoats were coming, so they went somewhere else. The British continued their march towards Concord. They marched up to Concord and tried to cross the town's North Bridge, but there they were met by a group of more Minutemen, and also other Minutemen were hiding in the woods nearby. Again, gunfire was exchanged, and this time only two colonists were killed, but three British soldiers were killed, and more were wounded. And again, the British were quite surprised by the ferocity of the resistance, so they stopped their advance, and then they turned around, and then they decided to march back to Boston. They were shot at and harassed by Minutemen all the way back to Boston, and in the end, they suffered more casualties than the colonists did. About 75 British soldiers were killed, almost 200 were wounded, and 50 were missing. That was almost half the British force that set out from Boston that morning. I mentioned Ralph Waldo Emerson. In 1837, he wrote a poem about this moment at Concord. He was a native of Boston, but his grandfather had lived in Concord and had actually witnessed the battle at North Bridge. Emerson eventually moved to Concord and retired there. And while living in Concord, he wrote the poem, Concord Hymn, which opens like this. By the rude bridge that arched the flood, their flag to April's breeze unfurled. Here, once the embattled farmers stood and fired the shot heard round the world. The battles of Lexington and Concord really were a shot that was heard round the world. The colonies were now in open revolt against the British, and news of this spread rapidly through the other colonies and then back to Britain. Though the battles of Lexington and Concord were kind of a draw, and the British forces remained intact and firmly in charge of Boston, the British did not accomplish either of their objectives that day. They never did capture John Hancock or Samuel Adams, and they never did get the arms and ammunition from Concord. Back in Britain, Parliament was outraged and made plans to send more troops, and importantly, more warships, to the colonies. But back in Boston, an impromptu army of nearly 15,000 militiamen surrounded Boston, cutting off the British soldiers from the mainland. The siege of Boston continued for several months. Then, in June, colonists heard that the British were planning on sailing across the harbor and occupying an important site on top of a couple hills just to the north of Boston. Controlling these hills, which overlooked Boston and the Boston Harbor, would be very important for the British. So, on the night of June 16, 1775, about 1,200 colonial troops under the command of Colonel William Prescott occupied the two hills, Breed's Hill and Bunker Hill. The taller of the two hills, Bunker Hill, became the name of the battle, although most of the fighting was going to take place on Breed's Hill. At the break of dawn on June 17th, the British became aware of the fortifications being made by the colonists at the top of the hill, and so they decided to attack. British ships in the harbor bombarded the hills, but did no damage to the hills, although they did set the little town of Charleston on fire. At noon, the British landed troops just southeast of the hills and then paused to eat lunch. The British thought that the Colonials would basically retreat as soon as they marched up the hill. Finally, at around 3 p.m. after a leisurely lunch, the Redcoats began to march and the Battle of Bunker Hill was on. As the British comms began to advance up Breed's Hill, Colonel Prescott gave his famous order, Don't fire 
until you see the whites of their eyes. When the colonists did open fire, they killed or wounded many of the British troops, and after several volleys of fire from both sides, the British withdrew down the hill. They regrouped, and they attacked up the hill again. This was also repulsed, again at the cost of many British lives, but very few for the colonists. Finally, the British regrouped and tried a third time, this time charging up the hill with fixed bayonets, and they eventually captured the colonial position at the top of the hill. From here, the colonists did a fighting retreat up and around Bunker Hill, and many were killed, though most of the wounded were carried off the field. North of the hills, again, was a narrow isthmus, and once the colonists were across it, the British dared not follow because there were more colonists on the far side. In the end, the British held the ground, but they had not really defeated the colonial militia, who were still firmly in control of the mainland behind the hills. So again, it was kind of a draw. The attack cost the British over 200 dead soldiers and another 800-some-odd wounded, including a large number of British officers. It would end up being the single deadliest day of the war for the British. One of the British generals, General Clinton, said in his diary that day, A few more such victories will shortly put an end to British dominion in America. The colonists, for their side, only suffered 150 dead and about 300 more wounded, which was much less than the British. The overall British general, General Gage, was relieved of his command after news of this battle reached Great Britain. He was replaced by General Howe, who arrived finally in the colonies in October of 1775. But meanwhile, news of the battle spread all over the colonies. British shelling, as I said, had set the small town of Charleston on fire and burned the town to the ground. Now, this kind of destruction enraged the colonists, and it was seen as something illegal, something that civilized nations don't do to each other, burning down someone's village, much less Britain doing it to one of their own colonies. But in August of 1775, King Charles officially declared that the colonies were in open and avowed rebellion, which meant that legally the colonies were no longer under the protection of English law. And shortly after that, Parliament declared that American ships and their cargoes and crews were all forfeit to the British crown, which meant that the British Navy could capture those ships, take the ship, take the crew, and take all the cargo. This kind of privateering by the British Navy would later be the cause of the War of 1812. The British Navy also bombarded some other coastal towns, including Falmouth, Massachusetts, which was bombarded in late 1775, and then on January 1st of 1776, they bombarded Norfolk, Virginia. Now, during that attack, British troops also came ashore and intentionally burned specific buildings, which only made the colonists more angry about the whole thing and more resolved to defend themselves. But wait, did you notice something there? We've crept into 1776. It's going to be quite a year, and it was kicked off by the British shelling of Norfolk on January 1st. Later in January of 1776, Thomas Paine published the famous pamphlet, Common Sense. It's a 47-page short booklet, and it soon was being printed everywhere in the colonies. It gave a short, clear argument for the cause of American independence and a democratic government, and it was soon being read and discussed everywhere in the colonies. It was the first and arguably the most persuasive call for American independence. More copies of this book, Common Sense, were printed than there were colonists in the country at the time, and it is still, to this day, the best-selling book 
ever by an American author. One of Thomas Paine's ideas is that independence was connected to Protestant beliefs and that American spiritual values were not compatible with England's state church. If you wanted freedom, freedom of religion or just freedom, you had to fight for independence. This booklet was incredibly influential and printed so widely that nearly everyone in the colonies knew about it. And whether they wanted independence or not, everyone was familiar with Paine's arguments. In May of 1776, the colonists learned that King Charles had hired a foreign mercenary army, the Hessians, who were from Germany, and started to equip them to come and fight the colonists. Everyone in the colonies knew that this was a further step towards a full-on war. As 1776 progressed, all over the colonies, militias were being organized, and George Washington was trying to pull together an actual army. He managed to pull together an army that became known as the Continental Army, though it was largely a loose collection of various groups of militia. We're going to come back to Washington and the army and the other battles of the Revolutionary War in a couple of episodes, but next episode, we're going to talk about what might be the most important document ever written in all of human history, the Declaration of Independence. Mm-hmm.